This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to episode four of Lockdown Edition of the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Program. This is 3CR. Last week, Vivian did a show looking at the ways in which it's possible to manage one's own psychological state in a time of crisis. It was no accident that that was brought out right now during the pandemic. It seems that far too often in the environmental movement, as well as in other modes of activism, there is a penchant for activists to look at themselves as part of a well-disciplined cadre, able to fight the endless battle against overwhelming odds and never falter. This stoic and romantic persona is noble, but there is one issue. It is not sustainable in the long term. Far too often in activism we see burnout. We spoke with journalist Mark Hudson about that last year. We need to be sustainable, not just outside but within, which is why I think Viv's show was so pertinent. We're still in lockdown at 3CR. Last week, I interviewed Marianne Slattery over the phone. Marianne is intimately entwined with administration of the Murray-Darling Basin. She worked for 12 years as Director of Environmental Policy there. What she saw was the organisation failed to live up to its mandate, and this incredibly valuable river system was being devastated by maladministration. She tried everything to fix it from within, but eventually chose to take a voluntary redundancy and go to the media. While this might seem not relevant to climate change, longer droughts brought on by climate change will force us to manage our river systems and our water resources better. This is not what's happening now. Marianne is our second guest. But up now we have our first, Natasha Sashange, who I spoke with last week as well over the phone. A few weeks ago, Vivian sent a link to an article on The Conversation. The piece was entitled, Here's What the Coronavirus Pandemic Can Teach Us About Tackling Climate Change. I had written on a similar subject and had thought about it long and hard. Uh, The changes that appeared to be happening to stop the spread of corona in Australia at least were a form of communal action that I had never witnessed before. To be honest, it was one that I never thought possible. If over the course of a few weeks, the country could more or less unite, if the economy could slow, perhaps this might lead to a shift in mindset that might make widespread action on climate change possible. Uh, That is the dream anyway. The piece in the conversation was more articulate than my thoughts and was written by the University of Tasmania School of Social Sciences, Dr. Natasha Sashane, who I have here on the phone. Hello, Natasha. Okay. Um, What I found particularly interesting about the piece that you wrote was how you framed the blocker for action on climate change as the problem that I was suffering from pre-corona in that I could not imagine a disruption to business as usual. Uh, Inertia, it seemed to me, was just too strong. Why did you choose to characterise action on climate change as a social imperative? Well, I think, right... um most people had problem um, imagining stopping business as usual. It just, it just seemed too far from um, reality in our daily lives. And many people find that it's too difficult for people to make changes in their daily lives just for sustainability and climate change purposes. Um, some people were just overwhelmed by the gravity of the situation and so they end up doing nothing. 
but many people, including policymakers, have acknowledged that the, there needs to be a scale down of consumption and to change our relationship with nature in order to combat climate change effectively. Um, but these changes have always really been too hard to implement voluntarily in daily lives. But now we have this virus that's shaken our world and it's turned our habitual behaviours upside down, possibly. And uh, we are experiencing and we will experience more impacts of climate change, uh, just in a more drawn out scale than coronavirus. So it really is a social imperative that we all do our bit because we will all feel the effects. Great. So often I see that climate change is put in purely economic terms, which makes my eyes roll back into my head. Um, it seems that the economy is a force without agency, or that's how it's, how it's presented. Why do you reckon explaining the reduction in carbon as a function of economic slowdown is insufficient in explaining the connection between climate change and the coronavirus? It's a good question. So the reduction we're seeing in carbon is very important and it can have a positive um, flow on effect on slowing climate change, even if it's only in the short term. Um, and there's a chance for Australia to develop an effective economic policy for this generation, for these challenging times. But it goes deeper than this because both climate change and coronavirus have demonstrated um, how connected we are to the earth and how connected we are to each other, especially. Um, so if we don't effectively address climate change, we'll see a slew of new viruses emerging in the future. We've seen uh, scientists have found um, ancient viruses that are being um, discovered in uh, Antarctic ice and, uh, and ice in the... Um, in Greenland. And so if we don't have an effective policy, we will find it hard to prevent the type of global health emergencies like we're having right now and from having such intense and widespread impacts. And so concentrating on economic recovery in areas like health um, and education, uh, things like that, instead of um, environmentally damaging industries, will also help us cope with future public health issues. And one thing has become glaringly apparent, it's that we cannot face issues like climate change and like pa pandemics in the future individually. It requires collective cooperation. Yeah, that, that follows on to my next question, which is I've noticed that in, in my area, in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, there's sort of a renewed focus on developing a local sense and it's something that's really sprang up out of nowhere. Um, we, we have people making things in their houses and taking them around to different people. We have all these kids sort of scribbling um, or drawing rainbows on the pavement and, and, and creating these rainbow trails. Um, and they might seem like small things, but I think it also means that local connections are, make, are being forged, local spaces of production are being uh, rediscovered. What, what do you think that means uh, for action on climate change? Well, just like coronavirus, we're all in it together. Uh, climate change doesn't have any boundaries. It's global. There's no secret that globalisation has helped spur climate-related impacts. 
this renewed focus on local communities, if continued post-coronavirus, it could have positive impacts for the climate. Because as you said, like people are shopping locally, they're buying more local produce, they're growing their own, they're trading with their neighbours. People are becoming more self-sufficient um, by force, but also because some people are just acting out of fear. They might think, um, you know, there were low supplies in supermarkets, now I need to grow my own food, etc. So this all lowers environmental impacts like um, carbon emissions and pollution, food miles, etc. And people are being forced to use what they have around the house, reuse their items, repair things that they might have otherwise just popped out to the shops and replaced in the blink of an eye. And so it can all bring about positive impacts for the climate. Now you mention it, I'm actually halfway through repairing my um, lawnmower at the moment. I say halfway because it's in pieces. I'm, I'm at the taking apart bit, but I haven't started putting it back together. But we'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, another thing, yeah, thank you. Um, another thing that has blown me away in the last few weeks is, is how much bureaucracy and sort of partisan noise that I just grown used to as a backdrop to anything happening, anything of any significance happening um, has fallen away. And to show that some, some of our leaders can act when they really need to, um, do you think that there's a chance that Corona could change how voters and citizens expect their leaders to act and what they expect of their leaders? Uh, yeah, look, I believe that the ways in which governments around the world have acted quickly and needed to act with a sense of urgency on this issue. It's just demonstrated to voters that when the political will exists, it can be done. And when it comes to climate action, yes, definitely, that legacy will definitely be in people's minds, um, those people that care about these issues. And if the leaders are still dragging their feet on um, acting meaningful climate change policy, then it may very well influence the sway of some voters. Cool. Um, so you spoke about the current coronavirus outbreak being a possible vehicle to boost investments in renewables. And now out of all the points that you raised in your piece, this is the one that I, I struggled to get my head around it. Um, it seemed a little bit too idealistic. Could you please explain your, your thinking and, and the point? Yeah, um, well, basically, well, it, I don't know if you tuned into Q&A last night. They also were talking about this um, need to invest in fiscal stimulus anyway. And so there's a real opportunity for policymakers to look at how we can use stimulus to kickstart uh, sustainable industries. The things like sustainable degrowth, it's not about a contraction of the economy as many people think. It's kind of, it has a... a negative connotations in the terminology, but it's really just about degrowing socially and environmentally damaging sectors of the economy like fossil fuels and other extractive sectors and put more efforts into some strengthening some industries and skills that will be more beneficial to the environment and that will help us take firm action on climate change. So essentially we can modernise the economy and change the economy in ways that will be more sustainable. And this includes renewable energies, just as an example. Right, right. Um, 
I'd like to go now to just very quickly the the area that you study, which is the 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 movement called uh, Buen Vivir. Is that how's that pronunciation? No good, right? Buen Vivir. Yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> Buen Vivir. Sorry, you're being very kind. Uh, which means good life in Spanish, uh, and that that's a movement that came out of Ecuador. And you've you've written a paper on this. Um, Natasha, could you just explain what it's about? Yeah, I mean, that was the basis of my whole PhD research. Um, so, Wimbervere is, it's a Latin American philosophy. So it's not just present in Ecuador, but it originates from Indigenous people in the Andes. I first came across Wimbervere when I was living in Ecuador and I was working voluntarily. Um, I had been working in sustainable development in Melbourne um, for a sustainability consulting company and there were just a lot of issues coming out in the area of sustainability and especially working with corporations about, uh, one, the effectiveness of sustainability and sustainable development and uh, almost like an oxymoron because uh, especially with resource mining companies, um, really are they being very sustainable in their uh, processes. So with all of these gaps that they had, they were all playing on my mind. When I went to Ecuador, I came across this. Um, it wasn't really a concept, I guess. It was more of a worldview uh, that the government had taken in Ecuador and they had implemented it in policy. Um, mm. And I found that could very well um, help us to bridge those gaps in sustainability. And so really what it involves is um, a mindset that focuses on well-being and sustainability in more of a holistic sense. So it values environmental well-being as well as human well-being equally. So neither one takes dominance over the other. And it's an idea that comes from the bottom up, from the communities and not from the top down from government. So Ecuador implemented Buen Revere in its development policy, but also gave um, rights to nature, which was a world first. And these rights to nature provide the moral and legal imperative to give agency to the environment, which is a very important step if we're talking about um, climate action. So by doing this, we can take away the primacy of human well-being and it would um, potentially result in better treatment of the environment and its resources. So my research was looking at how Buenavir can be implemented at the grassroots. Right. That, that sounds very interesting and, and really along the lines of my mode of thinking and where that's, that's arrived at the moment in that um, sustainability, I found, has become a, a bit of a corporate buzzword and, and mm -hmm. is thrown around a lot, especially with um, this last generation of, of uh, greenwashing that seems to come about. Um, but it's really nice to have a bit of a um, shift in focus just from sustainable sustainability and looking at nature as something to be exploited um, to mm. more something that, that you can coexist with and, and has equal rights on an equal footing. Um, yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for for speaking with me over the phone and um, in this, in this time where it's difficult to, to balance everything. And um, 
thanks also for thinking in such a lateral way when you're connecting um, coronavirus with climate change. I think we need more people to draw those sorts of connections. Um, Natasha, and I'd love to get you back on the show and talk a little bit more about Buen Vivir. Yes, no worries. Thank Thanks you. Hal, I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower, and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. Um, as Australia is the driest inhabited continent, the Murray-Darling River is one of our most valuable resources. As climate change exacerbates already difficult conditions like droughts, the Commonwealth Government's responsibility for managing this resource in a manner that benefits all Australia becomes more and more urgent. Unfortunately, this is not what's happening. Anyone watching the news early last year would have seen the mash fish kills at the Menindee Lakes. Was this caused by an ongoing drought or the fault of years of mismanagement, fraud and secrecy by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority? To answer this and other questions, we are joined by Marianne Slattery. Up until recently, Marianne was a senior water researcher at the Australian Institute, and before that, she worked for the Murray-Darling Basin Authority as the Director of Environmental Policy for 12 years. Whilst there, Marianne didn't like what she saw, so much so, she left and blew the whistle on them. We're going to find out about this and why the river system came to be in such bad health. Hello, Marianne, how's it going? Yeah, good, thanks, Kurt. Thanks for having me. No, no worries. I. First up, um, I'd, I'd really like to get an idea as to the health uh, of the Murray-Darling River system at the moment. Could you, could you speak to that for a little bit? Uh, sure. Um, I think on any measure, the health of the basin is in very poor condition. Certainly ecologically, we've had a massive decline in water birds. Um, uh, we've got threatened fish populations, native fish populations, to the extent that you know, only a couple of months ago, the solution to save the DNA of our native fish was to literally take them out of the rivers and put them in fish tanks um, until we get some more water in the system. Um, you know, and it was just really trying to save the DNA. You know, that's, that's what we've come to and that's how bad it is. Um, it's not just um, ecosystems, it's also um, communities. A lot of communities have really suffered because of um, water policy, um, it's affecting agriculture and regional communities and um, there's real winners and losers, um, unfortunately a lot more losers than winners. So it's just, on, on any metric, it's just been a disaster. So, and judging by the amount of money that's being spent to manage it, which is $13 billion at last count, one would imagine it would be one of the best managed river systems in the world. But the reason that we're here and we're talking is that it's not. And so how, how do they spend $13 billion and still have a river system that's broken? Um, well, it, the reform has been a massive shift of wealth um, through um, the transfer of money and also water. Um, there's been big, big expenditure in buying back water um, for the environment. But a lot of that water's the use of that water has been undermined through other practices. Um, there's been a huge amount of money that's gone to uh, 
efficiency program, which is supposed to make irrigation more efficient. Um, an example that's used is, say, lining a, a channel, an irrigation channel, so less water seeps into the, into the ground in transit, um, enabling more water to get to the crop. Um, uh, there's been several billion dollars in that program. Um, what that program has facilitated is the increase in um, structures, dams on pump storages to capture more water. So it's actually increased the amount of water um, that is being taken for irrigation and, and to the detriment of the environment, but also to the detriment of downstream users, which is um, further undermining water reliability, how much water you get for, against a water licence for both um, irrigators in the southern basin and also for environmental water. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just been a, a pretty fundamental, it's big big cash splash um, that's made some people much wealthier um, to the detriment of others. So reading through those reports that you sent me, um, the the one thing that sticks out is the Murray Darling Basin Authority and the government departments that it answers to are highly sensitive about what information the public sees. Um, they have to quote. Brett Walker, a predilection to secrecy. Um, for example, they like to keep their hydrological modelling secret. Now, remember, they're a government agency that's supposed to run in the public interest. Um, you worked there for over a decade. Can you think of a reason for this secrecy? Um, there's several reasons for it. I mean, the bureaucrats will probably um, tell themselves that it's because of the complexity and if people get information and uh, misuse it because they don't understand um, the, the big picture and the, and the complex nature of the information. So there's a certain amount of um, uh, patronising, you know, and um, condescend, condescending yeah. attitude with that. Um, uh, part, a, main, a main reason that a lot of information is withheld from the public is... Um, because it doesn't stack up. The numbers certainly don't stack up. There's lots of issues with all of the numbers around the basin plan. Um, there's lots of um, fiddling with the books, if you like. Um, so governments can't afford for that information to become public for people to scrutinise it. Um, you know, so that's the, that's the main reason that um, information's withheld. So and, and governments are very sensitive to any criticism, um, and they're certainly lots of areas that they could be criticised about if people had all of the information. So they have instead just tried to um, withhold information and, and withhold it from different parts in, within the existing agency itself. Right. So a lot, of, a lot of information isn't available um, uh, to, to parts of the agency that aren't working on that particular issue, for example. Right, right. Um... Now, you, you've been there across both parties, um, Liberal and Labor being in power. Um, is, is there any difference between them or are they, they kind of six or one, half a dozen of the other? Uh, I did notice um, a difference um, when, the, when Barnaby Joyce became um, Water Minister. I noticed quite, quite a distinct difference in the way that, that MDBA respected science and its technical expertise. Um, so, yeah, I, I did notice quite a big difference of things that, that senior bureaucrats um, were 
dismissing science, if you like, and, and dismissing technical information mm. um, to have a, a more politically palatable um, answer. Right. So that, that sort of atmosphere must have been very difficult for you to blow the whistle. Um, can you take us through that, that journey that you, you made to make that, to reach that decision? Yeah, well, I wouldn't call it, I, I don't identify as a whistleblower um, myself. Um, um, I was trying to do my job properly and kept getting um, thwarted from um, within the organisation. And um, I really, you know, can be put my hand on my heart and know that I exhausted every opportunity over several years to do my job properly and, um, you know, with with facts and evidence and um, correct answers. And um, it was really after a long process I was being thwarted that I came to the conclusion that there was something more nefarious. Mm. Um, and more nefarious reasons as to why some parts of the organisation didn't want certain information. Um, and I took a voluntary redundancy, um, four corners, the first four corners had just come out about water theft and there was some of interest from uh, journalists and politicians in, uh, in relation to water and I was well-placed to um, help um, explain some of the issues um, because I, I had, did have a, a very um, a good understanding of lots of parts of water um, and it's quite a complex subject so I was just sort of happened to be in the right place at the right time when the public was looking for answers um, and that's when I joined the Australia Institute and started um, producing research reports on the many, many issues <laughs> of um, examples of maladministration and malfeasance that um, our water, water reforms have become. Right. Um, now, you're a, a single mother of three. That, that sort of, um, obviously, part of that process when you spoke to the media was that a lot of your, um, the, the experience that you gained working for the Murray-Darling Basin Authority would have resulted in um, you talking to the media would have made it very difficult for you to carry that over and work in a similar, uh, work in any other government department. Um, and now you're, like I said, you're a single mother of three. Was that a really difficult decision to, to talk to the, talk to the media like that? Well, yes and no. Um, it certainly be terrifying to, um, been in a situation where you, you put yourself out there publicly. Um, I don't enjoy public eye at all. Um, uh, so, so that was sort of pretty terrifying and still is. Um, uh, but on the other hand, you're aware of something that's incredibly um, rotten and corrupted. Um, and it affects so many people, um, you know, $13 billion worth of taxpayers' money, this huge reform, it was, you know, once in a generation or more reform, um, noting that I came into this because I was so excited about the opportunity to be part of that reform and, and I started off really believing that it was a really good thing. Then seeing the terrible impact it's had on the environment, the terrible impact it's had on regional communities, um, you know, people's lives, um, you know, I get, I get a call, honestly, 
probably once a week or once a fortnight from somebody in the basin that's just got a tale of woe because of the water reform. So, and I've got all this information about what's happened and, and I understand it across the complexity. So, you know, you sort of, it, it's pretty hard not to speak up when you've got that information and you see how much damage it's caused, um, you know, both people, both for people um, and for the environment. Right. Um, but obviously you were surrounded by people who made a different call or chose not to make the same call as you. Um, so it's, yeah. I, um, but to be fair, a lot of people don't understand, don't only see one little component of it and don't understand the, the all of the components and how they fit in. Um, and a lot of people just assume that the right thing's being done. So um, a, a lot of people will sit down and explain to you how the reform is supposed to work, not how it is actually working. Um, um, so it's not that other people didn't choose to speak up. I, I don't think a lot of people actually understand um, understand it in its entirety. Right. Right. Um, so I'd just like to go back and figure out just why and how the Murray Darling um, is broken. Looking at the water efficiency program for a moment that we spoke about a little earlier, huge amounts of money are being spent in order to ensure that the water is not lost while still a 50-50 split between irrigators and the environment um, is made. Surely this is a good thing for both parties, split it right down the middle. Yeah, and this goes back to the problem um, that I said in the previous answer where um, when people explain how the program is, or the programs are supposed to work, it sounds great. It's, it's a really, the policy framework for um, the uh, water reforms, which includes the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, on the whole is pretty good. Um, certainly, you know, when it was conceived, it, it sort of is a, is a pretty good policy framework. The, the issue has been that every part of it has been um, corrupted, if you like. Um, the efficiency program is a bit of a standout. Um, so the program is supposed to be an investment by the Commonwealth mm. for an irrigator to improve their, um, the efficiency of their irrigation system um, and then any water savings is, is split equally. Um, so it sounds great. There's several problems with that. One, one is that... Um, the Commonwealth doesn't actually um, check the projects. There's several examples of projects um, that um, don't match what the original upfront project was that the Commonwealth mm. gave money for. The Commonwealth doesn't actually verify the water savings, the supposed water savings. Um, uh, people that defend the program say, well, that doesn't matter, that that the Commonwealth doesn't check the water savings because the irrigator has to hand over a certain amount of water licences. Um, but all the irrigators, those irrigators are doing is going and buying water off another irrigator somewhere else. Um, the efficiency program is very expensive. The government's acknowledged that it's very expensive, but that say that it's a better outcome because it keeps farmers farming. Irrigators, you know, the alternative is that irrigators would just sell their water directly to the Commonwealth. And when that was happening in the early parts of the program, 
um, that meant that they were leaving, often leaving their farms, and that was, you know, bad for local communities and um, so on. So the efficiency program was sort of promoted as an alternative to that and it keeps farmers on the farm. Um, but if the farmer's just going and buying water off somebody else, it's, it's just, a, it's just a, the farmer buying the water and getting a much higher price um, for it because they get the, the efficiency program rates. Um, so it's, it's really not um, solving that problem of, of, you know, the farmer who sold their water leaving. Um, um, my biggest concern with the efficiency program is it's funded a lot of on-farm storages, new storages, bigger storages. Um, so it's actually increasing the amount of water that irrigators are taking rather than, um, than decreasing it, which is what it's intended to do. Yeah, so just on that point, um, I'm really interested in why they need uh, more waters, why, why, why these farms are so much more thirsty than they were in earlier years. Um, well, where the, the biggest increase in extractions is happening is in the Northern Basin. Um, and these new structures allow more take of water from floodplain harvesting. So in the Northern Basin, it's very flat. You've got, the, the system is really like Great Big Inland Delta. So you've got a lot yeah. of water that goes across the landscape. Um, and up until the last 10 or 20 years, a lot of that water would make it back into the rivers and eventually into the Barwon Darling where it comes down to join up with the Southern Basin. Um, um, basically, the more water you can capture, the, the better off you are. And, and right. that's what's happening. I mean, everyone's aware of Cubby Station. That's a famous example of um, big earthworks that take advantage of water off the floodplain, um, capture it, put it in storage. Um, there are now hundreds of smaller cubby stations across the Northern Basin. Um, and it's having a really big impact on extractions of, of water that gets down into the system, into the Bar and Darling and, and onto the, um, into the Murray. Right. Um, and are they, I, I was reading something that where they, they uh, many farms are growing sort of almonds and cotton where before they weren't. And that's that. That requires more water as well. Is that is that right? Yeah, there's um, mostly cotton. Most of the irrigation in the north is cotton. Cotton is starting to move down south and is displacing um, uh, rice. Um, but in the south, you've also got a huge growth in almond farms down at the end of the Murray River. Um, the the land that this that these developments are on is um, also because it's getting into areas that weren't irrigated previously mm. um, and some of this is causing salinity problems because of the where the where the developments are located um, they're not sustainable or almond plantations um, Aether is a um, consult water consultancy business that um, did a report for the Victorian government last year I think or the year before and they estimated that at full when the almond the almonds in the Murray or at full development in 2025, that all of the water in the southern system will only be enough to meet 40% of the total water demand in a dry year. So the almond plantations are not sustainable based on water and also where they're planted. Um, but at the moment, all of our water 
in the south. A lot of most of our water is being directed towards almonds at the expense of other crops like rice and dairy. Um, and it's going to mean the end of dairy in the basin, um, certainly in the southern basin. Um, the dairy farms have um, been shutting down um, in this last couple of dry years. Um, they're incredibly efficient businesses. Um, they're shutting down fourth or fifth generation businesses and they won't come back. Um, and all for an industry that's not sustainable anyway. Um, and more than half of these almond farm uh, almond um, plantations aren't going to survive. Yeah. Um, I'm also interested in the role that big irrigators are playing in the political landscape with respect to the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and the Commonwealth Government. Can you just explain your experiences about how power and influence exert on how the Murray-Darling is, is managed? Yeah, you don't see that so much inside the bureaucracy, or certainly Commonwealth bureaucracy. You might see it a bit more in a state um, bureaucracy. Mm. Um, it's um, and and it's you really can only um, infer it, I suppose. Um, there's um, definitely in the northern basin, in particular, irrigators boast about um, having a direct line to the minister. Uh, either state or federal, both um, um, being able to pick up the phone and talk to whoever they want at senior senior bureaucrats. Um, you know, certainly heard examples of bureaucrats at relatively, you know, sort of middle management levels being threatened by irrigators that if they don't, you know, give, provide a certain outcome, then then they'll lose their job because. Um, um, you know, the irrigator will, you know, just put pressure on the minister. There's, there's certainly examples of, um, so the Bowen Darling water sharing plan is a good example of um, interference by irrigators um, into, directly into the minister's office to make last minute changes to the water sharing plan that benefits, you know, up to two irrigators, really at the expense of everyone else downstream. That's quite a, um, that, that water sharing plan has just been um, subject of an ICAC inquiry at the moment. Um, but we know that that was, yeah, yeah one irrigator, um, yeah, just getting last minute changes um, to, you know, a water sharing plan that had a, a two year process with community consultation, et cetera, and it was just changed at the request of one person. Um, um, I'm not sure I answered that very well, Kurt. No, 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 you did. You just can't hear me shaking my head on the other side of the line. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, um, a, a really interesting thing in terms of um, the political influence, uh, some, some interesting things to look at is um, the state seats of Barwon and Murray in, the, mm. in New South Wales. So Barwon goes from Broken Hill all the way up to Narrabri, um, all the way across to um, Lake Kajilago, I think. Um, so it, it takes up 50% of the state. It's been long held National Party seat. Um, uh, Shooters and Fishers won that seat at the state election um, and campaigned very heavily on water. I think it was a 26% swing. It was definitely over a 20% swing to go to Shooters and Fishers. That's Roy Butler. Um, the seat of Murray goes from Aubrey all the way over to Wentworth, so it runs along the, the top of the Murray River. Mm. Um, 
that was also a very strong National Party seat that went to Shooters and Fishers with, um, again, about a 27% swing at the New South Wales election. Yep. Um, that campaign was um, was funded and supported by irrigator groups. Um, again, right. so that seat was one on water. Um, we didn't see the same results in the federal seats for for um, some different reasons, but, you know, water's a very hot topic. Um, um, and, and that is that reflection of water being led by irrigators in the south um, uh, sort of at first seems a bit at odds with this, you know, political power, but the, the guys in the south, the irrigators in the south, um, are really um, feeling the impacts of these additional extractions in the north because it's affecting how much water they get because the water's not coming down from the north to the south anymore. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of... And, and there's been a big split in farmer groups and irrigation groups that is, you can you can map against north versus south uh, right. divide. Right. And, and you were talking... Um, I was like quite shocked about some of the stuff that I was reading about towns downstream and places like Broken Hill who are in a very difficult situation. Uh, so you've, you've been there and how are people feeling there and, and what's the issue? Um, well, Broken Hill um, has now got a pipe. It used to get its water out of Menindee Lakes, which relies on the Bow and Darling. Um, and a pipeline was rushed through um, to get their water from the Murray um, to provide Broken Hills drinking water. Um, and that was rushed through without any um, environmental um, impact assessment, a cultural heritage assessment. The business case was kept secret, even um, after several requests through Parliament um, and um, FOI-type processes in New South Wales. Um, the residents of Broken Hill had no idea who was going to pay for the pipeline. It was a $500 million pipeline you know, noting that it's um, quite a, a low socioeconomic area, lots of um, uh, people on old age pensions, et cetera, yep. um, and they had this very expensive pipeline that they didn't want, um, weren't consulted on, um, and it was rushed through basically under the you know, cover of, of quite a lot of secrecy. Um, meanwhile, Cotton Australia was um, boasting in its annual report in 2017 that it had a massive policy win because of the pipeline. Um, so what used to happen is when there wasn't, when, when Menindee Lakes was filled to um, water supply for Broken Hill below an 18-month water supply, there would be an embargo. The policy in New South Wales was to embargo taking water um, out, of the, out of the rivers in the north to ensure that water got down to Menindee for Broken Hill. Now, it was incredibly unpopular with northern irrigators, um, so when the pipeline was announced, Cotton Australia, with most of its um, most of its constituents are based in the north, um, saw that as a policy win because it meant that there would be no more embargoes for Broken Hill. Um, so you know the people of Broken Hill, Menindee, you know Pooncarry, Louth, Tilpa, all um, feel very um, uh, hard done by by water policy and and that they're not getting the flows. Um, out of the north and they're being sacrificed for, they say it is being sacrificed for um, upstream irrigation, um, yeah, upstream irrigation. Um, remember the type of landscape, you know, it's, 
it's um you know it's hot and dry and flat and you've got menindee lake sitting there which is these, you know massive lakes which is just um mecca for wildlife um you know uh, fishing um boating lots of tourism attracts a lot of artists um great you know the barkindji have got native title over that over that land because they've been able to demonstrate their forty thousand years of continuing existence around the lakes um and then to have that water taken away from the people out west is um hugely upsetting yeah you know there's it, lots of people it's um you can you know understand it's a you know it's an incredibly valuable resource for you know lots of reasons to lots of people um and so you know people just feel quite abandoned by governments um and, and betrayed by governments over the treatment of menindee sorry that's menindee and and therefore um the bar and darling river itself mm. Mm. um i'd also like to quickly discuss the kilty report which so Kilty was a former AFP commissioner who was appointed Northern Basin Commissioner in 2018, which was expanded to Basin Inspector General in 2019. Now, he produced a report in December last year while everyone was distracted by the bushfires. What was Mr Kilty, why was it strange that he was appointed to this position and why was his report uh, troubling? Um. Uh, well, he was appointed without any powers, um, had a very small staff. Um, he made lots of promises to um, people, gave lots of people a lot of hope that he was going to fix something, um, particularly the southern irrigators. There was a big protest in Canberra. There were several thousand um, southern, uh, not just irrigators, um, but community people, um, came to Canberra to protest about, they, they said the plan, but it's really about water reform and what was happening to their businesses and communities. Um, and he basically promised them that he would get them more water. Um, and there was, yeah, he, he didn't. <laughs> um, so he's, the report's been very disappointing to a lot of people. Um, so, that, so he's, he's released two reports, one in his capacity as Northern Basin Commissioner, which was released at the end of last year, and a report that's been looking into water sharing and if there's any water available for irrigation in the south, and that just came out um, last week. Uh, both reports are very disappointing and don't say very much at all. There's a couple of really big elephants in the room that um, Kilty has, hasn't spoke about in the northern Basin Commissioner report, um, he has completely ignored floodplain harvesting and the efficiency program, both of which are the massive problems in the north. And it's just completely um, inconceivable that he isn't aware of those issues. Um, apart from being told um, directly by multiple people, you know, mm. there's been many, many reports in the media, including the Four Corners program on the efficiency program. Um, it's been well well documented in the media that both of those, um, the floodplain harvesting and efficiency program, are just um, terrible, um, and have have um, increased extractions in the northern basin. Um, the report that he released last week um, is is very um, light on. Um, he um, 
um, again, hasn't is talked about reduced extractions into the, sorry, reduced inflows, a halving of inflows into the Murray River and blamed climate change, but he's completely ignored increased extractions. Um, so there's been increased extractions in the northern base. So the tributaries into the Murray, particularly the New South Wales side of the Murray, um, has been increased extractions in the northern basin, dramatic increase, which has um, had a huge impact on water coming in from the Barwon Darling into the Murray. There's also been increased extractions in the Murrumbidgee River and a big reduction in inflows from the Murrumbidgee River into the Murray, and both of those were ignored by Kilty. Um, and yeah, the, the rest of the um, recommendations are really quite, you know, light on things like more education. Um, uh, so it didn't really say very much at all. Um, and yeah, has left a lot of people very disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, finally, I, I'm, I'm interested in you and what's in store um, for Marianne Slattery now that you've left the Australian Institute um, from, from February. Um, what are you doing now? Um, so I have started um, a consultancy called Slattery and Johnson with a former colleague, a former Murray Darling Basin Authority colleague, Bill Johnson, who left around about the same time as I did. Um, and we are um, uh, helping people navigate water and the complexities of water, helping uh, people seek redress. You know, often that can be some legal redress. Um, um, yeah, so really just working in the water space um, mm. uh, still, um, but with a lot of um, communities and um, individuals that have been, um, yeah, impacted by the water reforms. Right. Is there an advocacy component to it? Um, uh, a little bit. Um, I suppose that's more aligned with, you know, our ethics and what we think is... Um, is the right thing to do. Um, one of the things that we have been quite effective over the last couple of years is campaigning. Mm. So some outcomes that we might be seeking for clients might include some campaigning type aspect to get an outcome. So if you want to call that advocacy, yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay, uh, that's, unfortunately that's all, all we got time for, Marianne, but thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat with me. No, thank you, Kurt. Cyclones Cast is pretty grim. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. BZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. <coughs>
That was Marianne Slattery. There's plenty you can do while in lockdown to move along the cause of action on climate change. The Victorian government is reviewing their environmental laws. It's worth noting that right now, even while everyone else is, is under lockdown, is a time when forests are still being logged and land is being cleared. We're still living in the aftermath of the largest ever species extinction in recorded history just this year. The Australian Conservation Foundation is petitioning the Victorian government, but it needs your help. Just head to the ACF's homepage, which is www.acf.org.au, and you'll see a link that says 300 words for nature. Go there and you can express your support for what they're trying to do. Environment Victoria is, has a whole bunch of resources to help people stay engaged with activism while you're at home. If you Google taking action from home, environment victoria it'll be the top link i'll put a direct link in the show notes for both of those as well thanks to our guest saluba bet thanks to viv for all her help thanks to andy and everyone at 3cr for scrambling to get this show happening under difficult circumstances you've been listening to the beyond zero emissions radio show i'm kurt johnson and this is 3cr community radio please stay tuned Exxon oil tanker, the CSR company, faced tough questioning at the company's annual general meeting today from shareholders concerned that payouts to workers affected by asbestos financially... The balance sheet is breaking up the sky.
The blue sky time.